Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. John, how are you, shit mate? I'm fine, how are you? <laughs> yes, all good here, mate, all, all good. Um, uh-huh. Just delighted, really, that uh, through a mutual acquaintance, Frank King, uh-huh. Frank, Frank's going to be on the... Um, we've already done our podcast, but he's going to be. Uh-huh. We're going to be um, premiering Frank soon. Um, that we've that Frank put us in contact, and he actually said, um, "I've got a guy that I'm working with who was sank on a ship in the Falklands, and my radar, um, my radar went up immediately. As you know, I, I was on an aircraft carrier for a year." aircraft carrier for a year and you have to do all the training obviously in case you have to abandon ship and yeah it's kind of the thing every sailor doesn't want to happen especially the the poor old skipper yeah. um, so it's absolutely delightful to speak to you john thank you very much thank you what part of the uh, world are you in uh newcastle north of england newcastle okay. time yeah that's uh, north of Exeter, I believe. <laughs> yes, it is, yes. I don't know anywhere up there. I only know the southwest. But um, what made you join the Navy? Um, well, actually, I think, I think um, to be honest, I was adopted as a child. And my, my blood parents were um, basically XRAF. Um, and I think it was, that was in the blood. And then... Obviously, when I was brought up by my adopted parents, um, they were totally different. You know, I wanted the, the excitement. They were, I, I, to be honest, I mean, I love my mum and dad to bits, but they were, they were very, um, I would say, well-to-do compared to what I was like. And I think it was just, I wanted the danger. Um, and I decided, basically, the military was it. But, I mean, I decided a lot when I was young you know, possibly 11, 12, it was just, that's what I wanted, uh, and that's what I did. I, uh, I actually joined the Marines first, would you believe? Bad luck. Uh, yeah, um, I was only 16, I was, it was a junior Marine, um, and I'll be quite honest, um, I was too young. Uh, training fine, everything fine, um, I just didn't like the people I was with, um, you could say I was posh, I wasn't, but, and then, you know, so there was lots of incidents going on. Uh, and I just, I, I took the opportunity to leave the first chance I got, and I did. Um, and I think if it had been a year later, it might have been a totally different thing because a year later I joined the Navy and I just went with it. Mm. You know, I'd, um, it was... Um, I joined up as a seaman. I knew I wanted to be a PTI. I joined up as a seaman. I did the 18 months. Um, did my sea time. Transferred to the PT branch. Um, after I'd gone field gun for the first time, I went to... Um, that was where I did the field gun for Portsmouth. Became the PTI. Went to HMS Daedalus. 
um, to sort of like do my apprenticeship as a PTI, as it were, to learn everything that I've been taught or to preach what I've been taught. And then in 82, I was given my first ship. I was really excited. I was only on it um, about a month and a half and we sailed for the Falklands. Wow. So yeah. I'm guessing HMS Daedalus, that's a shore, shore base, right? Yes, it's, it's a shore based out in Portsmouth. Um, that's where the fleet are on field gun, um, they train. But um, if I was there for a good year um, as, a, as a PTI, one of the things I did do there was many years ago, it was um, Prince Andrew was doing his um, helicopter, oh, some part of his helicopter training um, in a, a small establishment. And I was basically, because I was the PTI, the big wig, as it were, um, I had to look after quite a bit of the security um, of the, the wiki was there. You didn't teach him, you didn't teach him how not to sweat, John, did you? <laughs> no. In fact, I never, saw, I never saw him. Okay. You know, he was whisked in, in cars and whisked out by cars. He had a much, uh, can we say, a much better public persona after coming back from the Falklands as a, a helicopter yeah. pilot hero than, than he's got at the moment, hasn't he? Yes, yes, certainly. Um, apparently he was, I don't know, I mean, he was a bit arrogant, I think, you know, um, whereas Prince Charles was more one of the boys. Um, I know a couple of people who served under Prince Charles and they, they said he was, he was absolutely awesome. You know, great bloke. But, uh, I mean, it was funny, a little incident, one of the blokes was telling me, um, you go in front of the captain's table for being a naughty boy. And obviously the captain decides what your punishment is. Um, and the captain turned around and said, if you want to contest this decision, uh, obviously you can take it higher. Um, unfortunately, you'll have to go and speak to my mum, the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, you know, he, he was comical as well. I heard a couple but, of things about Charlie. Um, the, he does a lot of work because he's a, what the, I, I'm not, I don't all know the terminology, but what, he's the Duchy of Cornwall, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Spends a lot of time sort of down the southwest of England, or at least he used to. And for some reason, he would end up at the pub at Princetown on Dartmoor called the Plume of Feathers. Obviously, the Plume of Feathers is his crest, isn't it? I, I, I oh, I'm not too sure. Not too sure. No. But um, he'd be there, you know, with a group of young people or military or who, whoever it was doing something to his estate, I'm guessing. And... Yeah. Apparently he wasn't afraid to put his hand in his pocket and get all, get all the beers in for everyone. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I know my, my first ship I was on uh, was HMS Salisbury. And we had an officer on there who was really well-to-do. You know, he had this huge Cadillac car. Um, he came from, you know, a very high background. And we used to go up to um, Bethesda up in North Wales um, and spend a lot of time up there sort of just rambling in the hills and um, obviously going to the pubs in the village but um, it was a, gr a great time great time 
obviously that was round um, Langust as well because that's where I spent six I think it was six months uh, doing AT work uh, as a PTI training you know doing all the outdoor activities that you've got to do so I used to go up there quite a lot but it was really good really good for people listening, if you're wondering what the field gun is, John and I are going to talk about that, and I can't wait because it's absolutely legendary in the British Sharm forces. And well, it certainly was back along. It it seems to have um, taken a back seat. And John, I'm, I'll ask you to explain more 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 of that. But so, how old were you when we? What did we? The Argentines invaded the Falklands. Argent, we, yeah. We we never declared war on Argentina per se, but we did sail our task force to go and um, take the islands back. Well, we we were doing. Um, obviously, I was on the country, um, and we were actually in uh, Gibraltar uh, on a big exercise, big NATO exercise, um, and it basically you're basically training everything you know every part of the ship has been tested to the limit um obviously as a pdi um i do special sea duty run uh, and i'm on the bridge steering the ship most of the time but the last week um we're actually in gibraltar and it's like my test as a pdi so they arrange like a an olympiad where you've got every every sport you could virtually think of and I've got to organise the teams, get them to the right place and do that. Unfortunately, that was cut short. And we were told we were sailing south. Or sorry, we were sailing. Argentina had uh, invaded the Falklands. And we all thought, eee, great, we're going home soon. Top of Scotland. We didn't realise it was South Atlantic. Mm. You know, so obviously, so we set sail. And we didn't know... It, how long it was going to take. I mean, it took us about four weeks, I think. But we, um, you started off training little things and you then, they got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you'd have damage control exercises where thunder flashes would be thrown into the, um, into the mess, water flying everywhere. And then you'd have, obviously, your first aid exercises. And it just got harder and harder and harder. And it sort of dawns on you on the way down there, you know, this is actually real. You know, and then, because I was a PDI, a lot of people would come, the younger ones would want to talk to me. Um, um, and I didn't really, because I was a PDI, I was there to... to, to to comfort them, to help them, keep them fit, morale, all of that. But um, when I was starting to struggle, the only person I could really go to was a captain, and he's preparing for war, so I couldn't knock on the captain come door and just walk in and say, excuse me, sir, can I sit down and have a chat? You know, I don't feel right, you know. Um, but the younger ones who were there, you know, some of the older ones, they would sort of, they would just come and talk to me, you know, open up tell about the worries you know the girlfriends the boyfriends sorry the girlfriends or whatever and i bet i, I bet struggled were, i bet there were a few boyfriends john weren't there um well there might have been but we didn't know back then because it was it it wasn't the way it is now it was you know 
It was all kept quiet, wasn't it? Oh, yes, yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, it, it got harder and harder. Um, and we, we heard the snippets, of, you know, of the radio, what was going on. And we obviously, we knew um, about the Vulcan bombers on the 1st of uh, May. And on the midnight on the 1st of May, we entered the total exclusion zone or the 200 mile zone. And that was it, it started. And My it was, um, and to be honest, I remember that, that first day, um, all you got, all we could hear over the mic or the radio was Exocet. And I don't know if you know, uh, Chaff Charlie, it's like, uh, um, you fire up into the air loads and loads of tinsel and it all spreads out and it can hopefully the exocet will lock on some of the tinsel right and take it away from the ship it was a false alarm but um i actually knew adrenaline was brown then mm. you know i mean everybody was in the same boat your heart's racing it was pumping you know and because i was on the bridge i'm sort of like trying to steer the ship and looking out the wind uh, the bridge uh, the the skulls and looking for this and nothing happened but it was that was reality of war can we just back, you know, backtrack a bit john i don't mean to steal your no, story no. it's just for no. people listening that haven't been uh either in the armed forces and certainly not on a warship like you and i have there's an awful lot involved obviously so for a start you're already on military maneuvers so you yeah. you weren't allowed to go back to the uk and say goodbye to your family and, you know and no and give them a hug and it might i might n never see you again which obviously mm -hmm. some of your shipmates didn't come back mm -hmm. um how did that did how did that affect morale Badly, because it's we've been away a while and i think most ships who sail from the uk um, the, the crew sailed with minimum kit. In other words, you had your naval kit, that was it. We had all sorts on our ship because we'd been away, you know, um, and we were visiting other ports at, at, at certain parts. So a lot of personal gear was basically thrown over the side. Wow. Was, what was that to make room for armaments and stuff? Not so much armaments, but it's stuff that could float around. S stuff that could block things yeah. um you know um tvs that were in the mess had to be taped up you know the glass had to be covered with tape and mirrors were taken down um you know some people had golf clubs they weren't over the side and um, that you know all sorts of personal gear had to go over the side so that you had the minimum best stuff in your locker uh, and nothing else had you done the damage repair unit? You know, for, for people listening, it's uh, when you go on a ship in the military, you have to do a sea, a sea training course and, and survival course. Yeah. You do it in a, basically around Portsmouth and also HMS Rally, which is just outside Plymouth. Yeah. One of the, 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 the drills you go through is a huge, um, it's part of a ship. And it's on a hydraulic stilt, so it moves it uh, up and down. Uh, 
and it's getting filled with tons and tons of water almost instantaneously with smoke going off, flashbangs, and you as matlows or marines have to grab what they call a wedge, run to the hole and, and try and plug up the, the various different holes. And obviously it can be a huge hole. You have to take yeah. a big board, John, right? Yeah. Was that, was that um, in service when, when you did your training? Yeah, well, uh, because I like the set, well, I look at the company because that was uh, um, sort of the big one. Um, she's based in Portsmouth, so there was a place, Sagemouth Phoenix, in Port I don't know if it's there anymore, but that was uh, an MBCD sort of training school. And, you know, when the ships are in Portsmouth, they actually send groups of people um, from different departments, you know, to Phoenix for a week. Um, to do the do the training, um, but all ships companies go through it, um, and it's it's a, it's a regular thing, mm. you know. So yes, I've I've been on it. I've been there a few times, um, but it is you know it it it, it does help you, believe you me. Mind you, for us down the Falklands, it didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> and. The other part of that train, did you do the jumping off the diving board and having to climb into a life raft? Uh, in some ways, yes, because I was, I was also a ship's diver. So, yes, I used to go to, to each Miss Vernon. Um, and uh, I can't remember the name of the place, but I, I used to jump off the top of the diving boards, you know, and do circuits with wetsuits on or dry bags on, you know, with the old ring round your neck so you have to hold that so i've done that a lot mm. so yes but when you're at sea excuse me um on a on a uh, deployment sometimes those if it's mediterranean they'll stop the ship and have a hands to bathe and you jump off the plate deck or you jump off the ship side mm. so you know everybody's sort of been through that when we did hands to bathe john and we were some exotic place uh they used to get one of the Marines to go and stand on the um, the roof of the, what do you call it where the captain steers the ship? The bridge. The, yeah, the bridge. bridge. God, I'm going to get crucified for forgetting that. But the one of the Marines would stand on the roof of the bridge with an SLR. And if any yes. sharks came, he'd have to shoot it, right? But, yep. <laughs> but first you had to radio through to the bridge to get permission to shoot the shark, which is... Uh, yep. mm -hmm. I can't imagine any any marine would um, see a shark coming to eat some mm -hmm. of their shipmates. That's, fun <laughs> That's funny that because I can actually remember my SLR number um, from when I joined up in seventy four. Mm. I can actually remember that. Obviously, I remember my ID number, but I can actually remember the number printed on the side of the SLR. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, we were very lucky because when my troop went through training, they'd switched to the SA-80. Yeah. And of course, you hear from the old sweats all these legendary stories of how good the SLR was, especially in the Falklands, because mm -hmm. the guys swore by this weapon. So when we mm -hmm. went on ship, we were obviously the ship still carried the SLR. So we, uh -huh. we got the best of both worlds. Um, so you're on your way down south. Yeah. 
was there a moment of levity as you crossed the equator and you could have a bit of fun or no no it was just practice 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 you did have your sort of you might have had you know sunday afternoon where um apart from people on watch um doing what they do um i might have to do sport on the upper deck you know a bit of fun bit of games uh to keep them occupied keep them happy because everybody was all up in the air you know we didn't actually know if we were going to go to war or not it was just obviously they were going through like the paperwork stage of of, of you know parliament and deciding what to do would our threat of going down there pull them out or whatever but it wasn't until we got to the ascension islands and then we thought of right yeah Balkan bombers you know right they're getting ready yeah and I, I can't remember how long it took us from ascension um down the Falklands but we knew the first of May the bombers were going in yeah and they, they did an amazing job those Vulcans didn't they yeah, it's it's amazing how they got down there because they had to use the Victor tankers. Um, they had so many aircraft up there fueling because it was like piggyback fueling. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. So that you would you would have no fuel in your tank to get back, but there was another aircraft coming out to fuel you, so that you can go further, and then it was the same process on the way back. So that was an amazing, amazing feat. Yeah, so again, for our friends at home, that, that where the, the MOD decided they were going to have a, the first dig at the Argentinians and they were going to bomb the airport in Stanley. So basically bombing yeah. our own airport, but to deny the mm -hmm. Argentinians the use of it. And they put together these fleet of aging Vulcans that were just about to be scrapped, Vulcan bombers. The problem was... And they had to salvage lots of the parts and they'd go down the scrap heap and get parts because they these things were on their way out of service but flying down there they obviously only carried enough fuel to get x hundred of miles before they needed yep. refueling they came up with this complicated um, equation where a whole fleet of um uh, the Vulcans and refueling planes flew down together and, and it was just remarkable how they how they worked out this very clever system but mm -hmm. on the way back the Vulcan crews had to decide do we carry on and hope we get refueled because we're on we're on vapor now and if mm -hmm. we carry on guys we're probably after going to ditch into the sea and hopefully swim, mm -hmm. ashore to, swim ashore to Argentina where we're going to be taken prisoner. Um, and mm -hmm. even with this in mind, they continued the mission, which is just, well, get emotional just thinking about it, really. Mm -hmm. So the crossing the equator, John, that's usually, for people who haven't done it before, it's a moment of fun, isn't it? You, you put them in a bath and you... You know, you, you yeah, you've got King, King Neptune's there. He's got his, you know, it, it's it's just you get dunked in the bath, and it's it's just a good laugh, good fun. But no, we didn't have anything like that this time. No, and did you, you know, as the chief PTI, you, you, are you taking people for fizz? And 
you must be thinking, God, some of us might not be coming back. Yeah. The further you got down, the more people were thinking about it. I was thinking about it. Everybody was thinking about it. The captain was thinking about it. And you've got to talk about making wills. I mean, come on, a 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid thinking about making a will? You know, what the, You know, so there was a lot of, you know, a lot of things going on down there. Yeah. Um, and just the nearer you got, the more nervous you got until actually the adrenaline sort of kicked in. You know, obviously, 1st of May, the war started. And you really didn't have that much time to think about anything because you were, you could say, from dawn to dusk, you were at action stations. But when you were through the night, you had to think about, well, we need food. So you've got to sail away from the total exclusion zone, meet up with the RFAs, you do, you do the RAS, which is replenishment to see you're transferring fuel, ammunition, water, food, you know, uh, toiletries, everything you need to keep you going for another few days. Um, obviously then you go back into to where your designated spot is and then all of a sudden six o'clock in the morning action stations and you've only been bed two hours and then you're up again all day um and and then obviously sorry just one one second mate yeah john the replenishment at sea is it I'm just trying to think how it was when I was on ship. I think sometimes, depending on where we were in the world, depended on what kind of food you got. Was that was that what you remember? Yeah. Uh, sort of, yes, in, in a way. Um, but I think the replenishments at Sea Down South, I mean, we were running out of all sorts of food, you know, um, the basics, um, because we were so far away. You know, and the the RFAs had to get the food to us. You know, and sometimes you could say um, weather weather wasn't suitable because it was heading towards. Um, Injured my thing a bit. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can. Try not to touch the thing because it 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 makes a screeching noise down through the. The electric oh, right. gizmo, but <laughs> just, uh-huh. but um, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to think how it was when we were on, because sometimes you could be somewhere in the world and you'd get like the local bacon or something, something or um, or the yes. local beer, yeah. beer, beer, or and um, just kind of you wouldn't be expecting it. But I'm guessing you didn't get Argentinian bacon. <laughs> no, no. Um, to be honest, I. I I know food was scarce. I know a lot of the time we, it was like a pot mess because obviously the chefs, they had, to, they had to cook so many times for so many different shifts, for so many different people. You know, um, a lot of the time it was big, well, you, you'd have buddies brought up onto the, onto the bridge because we couldn't get off the bridge, you know, and stuff like that. But uh, you've got to put your hands up to the chefs. You know, they were awesome. You know, yeah. um, but no, it was, so you don't get much sleep at night, but then you're at action stations all day. Um, we used to get the hands up from the Hermes because uh, the company was a picket ship. 
so we were always miles ahead of the main group and we were like you could say a sitting duck but we could pick up because of the radar we had we could pick up the aircraft as they left Argentina and because um, it was quite a distance for them to fly they had to go high level save fuel so we could pick them up and we could guide the sea harriers into them or I think it was we could lock on with a sea dart um, something maybe 50 mile away yeah. and we could follow it and then when it gets into a certain range we can just let leash and it's bye 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 aircraft but I mean I was on the bridge and the sea dart uh, launches right in front of the bridge and when it goes off what a rocket you know and for maybe five six seven seconds after the launch you just can't see anything for the smoke uh, the afterburners or whatever you want to call it that goes off um and then you can it's an amazing sight to watch because you can just see it going away in the distance in like a, a spiral it's going all over the place and then all of a sudden and it just looks like a match head then all of a sudden the match head strikes and it just bang gone goodbye aircraft yeah they and, they, didn't they have to come in lower and lower those pilots in the end just yes um obviously they had to come in lower uh, when they got near the, the falklands or well, the falklands sound or um Bomali, as we called it obviously they had to come in low um away from i think it was like the rapier missiles and all of that uh, they used the the cover of land um but because the company was like 45 miles when sorry because the country was quite a distance off land we had uh three and 360 radar everywhere but the day we were sunk is a totally different kettle of fish mm. um, it, must have been your heart must have stopped beating when you heard the um what 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 did they did you ever get like a brace, brace, brace? Obviously, you probably did when he got sunk, but bef bef prior to that, did it get no, that far? Um, there was a lot of. Um, we did get it, but it not. It's not sort of brace, brace, brace. Um, I could hear over the the main sort of systems because I was obviously I could hear it. I was on the bridge. I could hear the officer, the watch talking to the captain in the ops room. And you could hear, you know, aircraft bearing, you know, two five zero five miles, you know, um, and you could hear them talking to the missile systems, saying, you know, missile lock. So you can hear all that, um, and that yes, tension starts to get you then because you're thinking something's coming in here. Um, I felt sorry for people like the engineers who were down in the down in the dungeons as it were, down in the engine rooms, they don't hear any of that. Um, the only thing that they know, um, and the thing that used to really panic them, um, we had uh, four engines on the country, I think two were Tyne and two were Olympus. When the Olympus go on, you hear a whine, right? And it's, it's Olympus is the, it's the ones that Boeing 747s had more years ago, you know, the real, big engines and it's a big whine when they go on and 
we could be on the Tyne engine, seeing fuel, and then all of a sudden there's something coming in, it's getting very close, and I would be told uh, full ahead both time. And it was like, oh, you know, so I would hammer the throttles full ahead, and you could just hear the change of noise. Well, for the engineers and people down below to hear that, it must be panic mode because they don't know what's happening. They know summit's in close. They don't know if it's behind, front, left, right, or port starboard. So they must have had a lot of, of um, horrendous times waiting, thinking, um, you know, hitting the deck just and wait, waiting for something to happen, which didn't happen. But obviously, on the day, 25th of May, it did happen. Um, and can you tell us the, you know, in what, what, how, what were the five minutes building up to that or the two minutes? How did it happen? Well, we had, we knew it was, it was the main beach landing, right? And, and we knew it was going to be a big day. Um, we had a hard big day, but we took out a few um, aircraft. We guided a lot of aircraft in, Harriers in. Um, I think we, our uh, little helicopter took out like a, 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 a spy boat, um, whatever, and it was coming up sort of late in the afternoon, but we were only about four or five miles off the Falklands, which meant our the whole of our radar could not cover the Falklands because it was long range. So the aircraft that came in, we picked up, we guided the Harriers, and then when the Argentinian aircraft went low, we lost them. And they must have made a specific beeline or three or four of these aircraft. It was their job to take out us because we were actually put where we were as a pawn to make them coming for us. So if we got hit, we got hit, but it saved the beach landing. So how we many, knew how many ships John had been sunk up until this point. Three or four. The Sheffield was first. The Ardent Antelope Glasgow, I think, was disabled. Um, but we were actually uh, there was one Ardent Antelope, I think, in the Falklands sound itself that was the one where you saw the huge explosion at night it was in the dark and you just saw um it was that um but we were the one really that was hit hard and so, you'll find you'll find out why when i tell you <laughs> yeah the point i'm getting to is that you guys must already have known that your shipmates have been sunk Yes, and, and I'm guessing there was there was lots of you know, a, a big loss of life. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's all very, very real, and uh, I'm guessing extremely terrifying. Yes, it is. Yeah, because you, you, yeah. I think when you're stuck on the ship, you are. I don't know if it's. I suppose it's. If you're on land. Um. Okay. The Marines on land, they, um, or the Paris, whatever, um, 
you get attacked and I think it's sort of, you can actually split up and you can move away and hide, if it were, and then prepare yourself for your assault. But if you're on a ship, you can't get off that ship. If that, and it doesn't matter where you are on that ship, right? If it gets hit, you're, you're all in the same boat. It's, it's not like one small section of a land force, everybody else can move away and then regroup and counterattack, as it were. When the ship's hit, the ship's hit, you know, it's all and on. So that, that is a frightening thing. And knowing that you've got to go into sub-zero waters is a frightening thing. Um, so it's, there's a big combination there. You know, yes, you might get off the ship, but you've still got to survive. You've still got to life off or whatever the scenario is, you know. Yeah. So it's, and, and it's not like, it's not like a, a, a war movie where, oh, you've all, you know, you have, you have the, the, the movies on, on the TV or the cinema and you have this horrendous situation, but then you've always got um, your rescue party coming in. It's, it's not like that. You don't know if you're going to get a rescue party. You don't know if you're going to get this because it's, it's real. You know, it's real blood and guts and um fire everything were so you were you wearing your anti-flash all the time or was that only at action stations um you have to wear it at action stations um when you're on defense watches you will have it on but you won't have it up if you know what i mean over um it's always in your little pouch next to you wherever you go 24 7 it's it's on your body when you go to action stations it's automatic it goes on and it stays on until you're stood down and your life preserver as well is that you always carry that with you yes um you actually even when you went to sleep you'd still have it around your waist you know you'd have your anti-flash with you you'd, you'd 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 have it all you were always there you know constantly by your side so for friends at home, the anti-flash is the hood, a bit like you see the racing drivers wear that you pull over. It's made of fireproof material. You have gloves as well. Uh -huh. um, obviously, because the burns risk is as big as any other risk. And your life preserver is obviously what it is. It, 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 the ones we had, you, they secured on a belt around your waist. And if you had to... Um, you know, jump overboard, you pulled them up around your head and they had an automatic inflation device. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm asking John this is I'm, I, I want to know what state of readiness you were in, John. Um, oh, sorry. And, the, and if you've got time before you abandon ship, you put on... Um, once only suit. Once only survival suit. Yeah, that is, that is with you all the time as well. It's in a little pouch ah, okay. with everything. You, you've got everything together that you need. And that's a, a survival suit, a bit like a dry suit, a very flimsy dry suit that is going to protect you once you've jumped overboard just long enough for you to swim, say, to a life raft or to get picked up by, by hopefully a chopper or something. Um, 
over to you, John. So what, what state of readiness were you in? Right. Um, I think it was about possibly five o'clock at night. Um, we knew there was something going coming up. Um, back to action stations, uh, fully booted and spurred. Um, the aircraft came in and we followed them for a while and then we lost them. Um, we knew those things going on at, uh, uh, in Bomali um, because we could actually see explosions, you can see the, you know, what's going on over there in the distance. And then all of a sudden we were, we picked up aircraft on our, our radar. It, they'd basically gone through Fortland Sounds and the cover of the hills, came up the other side. Uh, we had a boat next beside us, which was the Glasgow, I think, no, Brilliant. The Brilliant um, was next to us. She was short range. So she would pick up short range stuff. The aircraft were picked up short range. Um, we got a lock. Um, the lock failed because we couldn't identify land and aircraft together. It wasn't long before we had all of our, um, it was a matter of seconds before we had all our upper deck small arms firing at the aircraft. Uh, they came in, we decided to uh, hard, a, hard a port to give them the least amount of uh, target. Unfortunately, by doing that, the Glasgow, our partnership had just locked with close range missiles because we did the harder port we brought the lock we went in between the aircraft and the missile the missile couldn't go um three air four four aircraft came in or three four aircraft came in i could actually see the aircraft um through the bridge window you could see the small arms fire going up and the old-fashioned Orlikan that we, uh, the country had. Um, you could literally see the whites of the eyes of the pilots, they were that low. Um, one bomb was dropped and I watched it drop and it was just like slow motion. It just seemed like deadly silence and I watched it and I watched it hit the water and then I watched it bounce because I thought it was going to come straight into the bridge window and it just went over the bridge. Um, then it landed the other side and it caught the stern of our sister ship uh, and went up and out the flight deck and took the helicopter off. Wow. Within, within seconds, there was three, uh, another three bombs came in. One went below me into the computer room. One went midships and one went aft. They all exploded um, and you could feel the ship starting to tilt already, but it was the, it was the sense of, it was the silence. It was the silence of engines, not. Communications, not. Radio, not air conditioning not the ship was dead with in you know matter of seconds just total silence 
yes, you can hear the noise going on under, you know, down below. Um, you could feel the ship actually turning. You know, I was on the port side. I could feel it going down. And then the smoke came up through, through the, the hatch on the bridge. And then obviously there's flames coming up, but the smoke is like a black acrid stink. It reminds me a bit of, of um, the dirty car fuel backfire. So that, that reminds me, if I ever, ever hear it, sometimes you get these cars pass you um, at home and you can smell the smoke. That, that brings up memories constantly. Um, I helped somebody on the port side with the Orlican for possibly a minute because uh, obviously there was other aircraft flying around. Um, the captain came up. He was in a total daze. Didn't know what. He shouted to me and he said, yeah, I think he said, he said, full steam ahead, both engines. We didn't have any engines. So he was totally dazed. Um, within minutes, the ship was 45 degrees. Um, I basically had to climb up from the port to the starboard side through the bridge to get onto the starboard side to get to the life rafts. The life rafts were in the water. Um, I actually ran down the ship side or ran, slid, ran, slid into a life raft. The, there was people in the life raft already. I actually couldn't get in the life raft because there was too many people in, but some of the my comrades in there were injured. Um, you know, they had a lot of burn marks. There was, there was, there was more injuries, more injuries than that. Um, we had people trying to get in the life raft, but we couldn't let them in because there was too many people in. Um, that haunts me because it was like they look at you and they say, "Well, clubs, why, 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 why can't I get in? I'm frozen," you know. And I couldn't because we couldn't get them in. Um, so they would swim off and try and get to another one. We had the helicopters above us, um, picking up people out of the water. The downdraft of the helicopter would um, would push us into the ship side so we couldn't get away from the ship. So we actually, our life raft went around the bows of the ship and then came back down the port side but the port side was the side that was going down so it got to the stage where we were moving moving along the side of the ship with the, the, the down after the, the helicopter there was a missile on the launcher a cedar the fire escape was open just in front of the four or five turrets at the front there was flames coming out of that there was underneath that was the actual magazine for the sea darts um, and then you've got the big radar, which is on the ship, which was just about ready to fall off. And we were sort of nearly underneath it or going, getting closer and closer to it. Um, by now the, the comp is basically a full 45 degrees because the, the, the sea dart, which has got the four metal prongs on the front, actually pierced our life raft and started.
they're the, the prongs that pierced the life raft um, and it basically was going to take the life raft down so we had to get out um, so we basically had to bail out and get everybody out and you could my, my once only suit had, was ripped it was freezing cold um, we all came out and then there was um, there were still helicopters pickled peeping up and there was boats from I think it was the broadsword oh, I can't remember the other ship there but she'd sent their life rafts over sorry their boats over picking up people out of the water I had to swim quite a distance um, I got into one of those like um, small boats but there was that many people trying to get in the boats especially on one side it was like gonna capsize a boat but we managed to do that and then we were taken to the sister ship i just can't remember the name now um, and we had to climb up the um the ropes at the side of the ship and then we were taken into the wardroom and if i'm correct we were given a large whiskey <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and that's all of the order in at this stage in the proceedings uh, all of that um so so from actually the country exploding she was actually 180 degrees and you could see the propellers in 21 minutes so that is not a long time and as your is your life raft sank i'm guessing there were people couldn't get out i mean if they were injured some of the we managed to get everybody out but i can't remember you know exactly how many were in there um nobody went down with it as far as i, I know um because that would have been talked about uh, uh, um you know at a later date but i presume everybody got out but for me one of the biggest things is it's just the look on people's faces when they're like you can't help them you can't pull them in and it's like why can't you let me in i'm freezing i'm cold i'm injured and it's just like a it's just like a horror face you know and i used to dream about that a lot i used to dream about that a lot until um until i had uh, therapy um when i could actually you know open up and talk about it that used to haunt me that how many were in your ship's company i think it was about 250 260 um 19 comrades died and there was i think it was 30 40 injured um if i'm correct one or two committed suicide years later but i can't you know i can't guarantee that that's just sort of things i've heard on facebook you know or, or well, comments made john i'm sure you'll agree with me these government statistics they don't take into account the civilians that die they don't take into account the people that drink themselves to death or or, or well, you just turn, just turning my phone off because that was my son ringing <laughs> <laughs> yeah these statistics don't count the people you know that take drug overdoses that that their lives are cut short through the through the trauma mm -hmm. um and of course you know the suicide is they always say more people far more people commit suicide after a conflict than die during the conflict and yeah. this is um half our battle at the moment um 
you know, some of these brave groups like Veterans Against Suicide that are just mm -hmm. petitioning the government constantly to get more support. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember, I mean, it, it's, I mean, after I was diagnosed, I mean, I remember I had a flashback. Um, I was in my local rugby club, I had a flashback. Uh, and a few days later, um, I was sort of thinking, these people thought I was a nutter. I was crazy, you know, um, because I'd, I'd lost it, absolutely lost it. And I, I, I actually went to my local park with my iPad and I sat there and I did a nine minute video um, and I just sort of introduced myself. I mentioned mental health. I opened up and said, and I basically told them a nine minute story of my life. Um, it wasn't as explicit as what I've been telling you. Um, but I think within four or five days, um, I'd had 75,000 hits. Gosh. Um, some of the comments I'd had, it was like, wow, how can somebody open up like that and talk about mental health? You know, and, and that was my, that's what sort of started me thinking about things because it's like 75,000, a lot of people would see me, you know, on that Facebook page and they would look at my face and you would just move on. But no, they stopped and they listened to it. I would like to know how many people have actually listened to it are suffering in silence. Because, yeah. you know, if, if, if you don't, I think if you don't suffer from any mental health issues, you wouldn't watch something on Facebook, right, about mental health. No, no, exactly. Huh? Let's, let's come on and talk about the, um, this very valuable subject, John. But I want to go back to the point you're in. So you're on the on the let's call it the rescue ship. You're in you're in their mess, and they've given you a whiskey. Yeah. Um, are people in shock? Is it, I mean, is there blood everywhere? How how is there's, there's no no. There isn't blood everywhere. I think because. The ones who were injured are being looked at, right? Um, you're in the mess, but the first thing they did, obviously, they it, it was I think it was the ward room. Uh, they gave us a whiskey, or it was might have been a tot of rum. Um, and the first thing they're doing is trying to get you, you know, warm because you were freezing. Um, nobody had any clothes. We were soaking wet. I was given two left feet, pair of trainers, of somebody. I had, um, I don't know what we call them, I think it was number eights back then, um, the blue, sort of like denim shirt, denim trousers that you wear as, as you know, for working gear, um, a pair of trousers that were too big, I had a shirt that was too big, half the buttons missing, we had no clothes, we had nothing. Um, there was people there trying to talk to you, trying to help, uh, you know, speak to you, but it's like you don't want to speak you just you sit there in total shock in total awe and you think you know trying to go through what's happened through your mind you, you're you're in a totally different planet a different world and um obviously there's still got things going on there's people being picked up out of the water you've still got uh, the landing craft going into to st carlos bay you, the war's still going on but for us it was over and it was like but I do remember 
we were actually taken into the Falkland Sound at night and transferred to an RFA. And we were all went up in sort of like the main galley up there. And um, people coming in at different times from different ships, different helicopters. And it's just total silence. And um, they've got the radio on, and it was the World Service. And we all remember, and we will remember it to this day. Um, it's like you, you get the, the music that starts the World Service. And the first thing that comes on is HMS Coventry has been hit down the Falklands War, right? Bombed instantly, capsized, and uh, casualties are high. How soon did you start realising then that you'd lost shipmates and, and was it like really personal? Did you think, oh my God, this is a friend, you know, an oppo of mine? Um, it took a long time to, 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 to realise, you know, who hadn't made it because people have been picked up and taken to different ships. So we were all now starting to congregate on the RFA in the Fortland Sounds. And you'd see people coming in. Um, you would hear little stories about um, certain things. I mean, I know, God rest him, my, my sports officer was in the computer room um, when, uh, when the bomb went off. Um, he didn't come out. Well, unfortunately, he, he came out. Um, but he didn't, he, he died basically, he died on, he died in the explosion. Um, I knew that, um, but then it's still, honestly, it is a blur. And we were taken from there on another RFA to South Georgia. And that's when things started to realise because they were still trying to find people, um, um, record who who was you know who was available because I think some of the some of the lads were actually on the the hospital ship down there in a serious way. Um, so that's when you know everything started to come together, and on, on the RFA on the way to South Georgia, but on the way to South Georgia. Um, they had national stations and everybody freaked because it was like, not again, not again, because the RFA is so inside the ship is so open with big, because they're full of containers. They're the ones that supply your food, your ammunition. So it's like, and you've got no way of defending yourself. You don't know um, actually how to get around the ship properly because you don't know it like the back of your hand. So it was like a big panic. As it happened, everything was fine. Um, and then we were taken, once we got to South Georgia, we were put on the QE2. And then that was our slow, uh, that must have been a week, a week or so later. Um, and I still hadn't been able to contact my mum and dad. They didn't know if I was alive. They didn't know if I was dead. They didn't know was I injured? And it was the same for everybody. And it wasn't for a couple of weeks before I actually was able to, to I don't know how they'd do it back then. I think it was a, 
you were booked in for a satellite call home. And that was the first time I spoke to my parents after about two weeks. And they didn't know, you know, what was happening with me. Um, either way, they could not get, nobody could get in touch with uh, the MOD because they were just flooded with phone calls and it was always engaged or whatever. Um, but it was actually, I had a girlfriend at the time or an ex-girlfriend who was in the rings down there and she actually found out that I was alive and she actually phoned up my mum and just said, you know, John's alive, um, everything's okay, right? If, you know, if you need anything or if I can do anything to help, you know, so, but it was still four or five days after that um, before I could uh, contact my mum. So. Oh, unbelievable. And the pain they must have gone through. Uh -huh. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it was, you know, when, when, when we did get back to, to Southampton, um, I was actually, when we docked, I was actually second off the ship. Right, and I found my mum and dad, and the first thing my dad said to me, "Can I hug you? Are you okay? Wait, are you hurting anywhere?" And he wouldn't, because he, he wouldn't. He didn't want to shake my hand. He just wanted to know I was okay. But we had a hug, bit of a cry. You know, my mum and dad, my sister was there as well, um, and that was a really, really emotional uh, um, moment. Can't. I'm trying to hold it together here, John. It's what? Which ship did you come back on in the end? QE two. Oh, you came back on on. Yeah, the the QE two took the troops down there, and then she anchored up um, the Falklands, South Georgia, and and she stayed there. And there was the Coventry, the Ardent. I think it was the Antelope. Um, all the survivors of those three ships were put on the QE2 and we sailed back. Um, I, we didn't get back. I, th I think it was um, June. I think it was June we got back. It might have been July. It'd probably be June. We got back in June. Did you have to wait until the conflict had finished? or No. They Once the three... Once the three ship's companies had got onto the QE2, she sailed. So for our, um, for our foreign friends listening who might not be familiar with the terminology, the QE2 was um, a cruise ship named after oh. Queen, Queen Elizabeth. Oh. Um, and so these were civilians that... I don't know if volunteer is the right word because they probably didn't have much choice, but they had to um, sail to the Falklands as civilians to support the military effort. And I should give a shout out here to my cousin, Brian, who was the chief steward on the QE2. Um, and I said to him the other day, he's living in the, um, in, uh, the Caribbean now we chatted the other day on on the internet and uh I said to him so were you like well outside the exclusion zone and he's like no 
we we were in there with everybody else so just incredible gosh gosh yes do you think a lot of lessons were learned by the navy with respect to the casualties thing and the reporting and i mean i think a lot of lessons were learned um i mean you look you look at the country you know uh, she wasn't designed for that type of war right um and she was it was all computers and yet i mean i look at it and i think well you take out the computer room you've taken out the whole ship so it's like maybe you should have a backup computer room <laughs> you know just like you've got you've got you've got your main steering and then you've got secondary steering and then you've got a backup steering which is actually in the tiller flat which is pumps hand pumps it might take a long time to turn the ship round, but you can steer it if the bridge is taken out whereas you take the computer room out the whole ship's out that's it yeah um yes they, they probably learned a lot of lessons but obviously i wasn't in the navy i was only in the navy for two years after that and then i was out you know so um i mean i, I watched programs at the minute on the telly about um uh, the, new, the new carrier being um commissioned and built and um i can't remember the name of it now anyway uh, and it, it's totally different you know absolutely totally different to when we were there you know, so, but yes, they probably learned some, you know, good lessons. Um, you know, everybody would have, so. When you were sailing back, John, did you have, were there sort of memorials services going on by the Padre or anything? No, we had, um, every morning you would have a, uh, you would muster in the cinema and all three, you, you, you'd say prayers. Um, all three captains would, um, say their own bit obviously because you've got three crews in there or six companies uh, three uh, um three captains three ship companies um you are on occasions you would have your own personal ship's company meeting um i had to organize or try and organize things for them to do during the day um you know uh, sports because there, there was there was two PTIs on there one of one of the PTIs didn't make it God rest him um, there was me and another one um, and we did like a, a, a an orienteering competition on the whole ship you know you know finding places um, we would hide things underneath certain carpets or do this or you know different things for them to find um, we did um, we organized a darts competition um, they organised uh, a sods opera mm. on the Kirito. So there was, you know, lots to do. Um, but obviously, and then obviously some people would go sunbathing. Um, I remember there was always beer in the, um, in the bath full of cold water. They, they'd always put, ship's company would put a, a case of beer in the bath for you. I remember that, you know. Um, so... But it, it, it was a miserable journey back. Mm. You know, it was the, a miserable journey back. 
so did the civilian company on the QE2, were they, how, how were they around you guys? Because they must have obviously sensed that you were all in shock. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't have done any more. They were absolutely awesome. You know, they, they, they really, really looked after you. You know, and it, it, it was, they, they were great. You know, there was never any conflicts. Um, they sort of, if you were down it and, and, you know, didn't want to speak, they wouldn't speak to you. It was as if they knew they'd been prepped beforehand about how to deal with us, what to say to us, uh, how to keep us happy, to help us, you know, they were they were good. I mean, it, I mean, you know, it's a long time ago, nineteen eighty two. Now, uh, so a lot, you know, I can't remember everything, but no, they, they they were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And how was it for the? If you had three captains on board, they'd have all, they've all lost their ships. Must mm -hmm. have been obviously not just the worst or most challenging moment <laughs> in their careers, but probably probably amongst the worst moments in their life, I'm guessing. Yep, it will be. I mean, I didn't really get the chance to speak to, to, to the other captains, um, but our captain, David Hartdyke, um, I, I met him a couple of occasions at reunions, you know, and it's devastating, absolutely devastating. But there's, you know, quite a few interviews with uh, our captain uh, on YouTube. You know, I've, I've watched them a few times, you know, he actually opens up, and, you know, what it's like, um, you know, um, the inside, his side, his story, you know, stuff like that. Um, so that some, some of them are, uh, are, are, are a really good watch, mm -hmm. you know, but it's, it's amazing because um, I'll always remember our captain and I will do for years because he's got a daughter, right? And her daughter is Marinda Hart, the comedian. Mm. Oh right. gosh. Yeah. So, you know, every time, I'll, every time I see her on the telly, you know, it reminds me of her dad. Mm. You know, and they look so alike. It must have been so difficult for those captains to be walking around amongst the crew. Yes. I, I, I'm not sure people listening will understand what I'm getting at, but it's there's so much tradition in the navy in fact yeah it just it runs through all of your blood when you're in there and and there's certain things that it's almost like they're setting stone and yeah again like i say mm -hmm. for a captain to lose his ship and mm -hmm. and to know that people went down on it and of course of course this goes without saying there's not this is not a blame Thing at all I'm just I'm feeling for the captain here you know it, mm -hmm. it what, what could you, I mean could you you must have seen this on their faces you can see you can you can see the strain on the faces you can see the anguish they're going through you, you, can, you can sense it but they are so proud you know they hide it very well you, you don't know really what goes on in the back of their mind you know what they're doing because they they uh, um they stand up they are the captain they have to do that you know 
uh, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, in the evenings when they went back to their own cabin on the QE2, they had a good cry. Mm. It wouldn't surprise me, in, but they won't show it no. because they are the captain. You know, of course, they once they get back to the to to England, the UK, should I say? Um, it, you know, they got all the boards of inquiry and stuff to go through, haven't they? And yes, mm -hmm. you know. So it's not, uh, it's it's no way over yet, and that's got to relive all these these awful memories. Mm -hmm. Was it hard for you, John? I mean, you're meeting your parents there. What did you say, Southampton? Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it's not really a fair question. I didn't, I didn't mean. No, it's okay. That's okay. I, I, Just, okay. it, it, you know, it's like your shipmates haven't come home, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's not fair on any of you, is it? No. I mean, it, it, you arrive at QE2, I mean, it was, it was a tremendous occasion, you know. Um, and it was like, a sense of reality again. I mean, you still had to go home and you had to face the music. You know, yes, I, I, would, I, I was going to go back to Newcastle. Um, there was a street party arranged for me, which I didn't know about. But it was so nice to see my friends again. But you could see them all standing back thinking, are you all right? Is there something wrong with them? Uh, you know, and they didn't know what to say. Um, they didn't know how to react. And that is something which I, I think I've learned over the years and, and it, with, with mental health. Um, um, and I, I made a comment on an interview I had uh, um, when I was on the STS Lord Nelson, uh, but that, that's, that's another story. Um, and, and I said basically that um, military people will actually open up to military people because you trust them right you work together you live together you will bend over backwards for each other right you will stick up for that person um but in civvy street I've, I've, over over sort of my time uh, uh, as a civvy is i can't speak out to people um i don't trust them because you'll get shit on from a great height you know you can be best of mates, but when something goes wrong and you're working, it's like, well, it's not me. Whereas in the military, you will back each other up. So that was something that, that I said, and I, I'll, I'll still stick by that today, unless I've met somebody who I trust. It's just really, really hard to, to, to talk about it. So when you go back to that... Um, with it, this, this, the street party, it was very strange. I mean, it was it was great to see them all, and it was nice for the amount of people that were there. But you felt as if they were all standing back still, because they weren't sure how I was. You know, is he mentally all right? Is he okay? You know, you just didn't know. So it's a funny thing, John. You know. Like, in all my life, right, 
in all my life, not never ever, not even on one occasion. Well, uh, sorry, the, there was one occasion have any of my civilian friends ever asked me anything about all my time in the military. You know, yeah. mm -hmm. before I joined the military, I there was a guy called Martin who jo who who joined Limpston, right? And he he hurt, he'd got injured and had to leave, right? But he he was at my house once. Once I heard him say I was in the Marines or Marines training, I'm like, what's that like then? How, you know, why did you join? What made you want to join? And I, uh -huh. I, I, I couldn't ask him enough questions, right? Nobody, including my family, any of my friends has ever even asked me, like, what's it like in Norway? What's it like to put a Bergen on your back and have a machine gun? Uh -huh. You know, what's it like to patrol the streets of Northern Ireland and... and uh -huh. It, it just i i don't know why i don't know why there's that disconnect there i don't know if it's that they they're not interested or whether life mm -hmm. just takes up all our minds you know our own lives or, or whether they feel a bit you know backwards and mm -hmm. coming coming forward um so for for people coming back from the falklands i can picture a little bit how difficult it must have been and then of course you had that there was someone in one of these Falklands documentaries they said I think they said they got back to Portsmouth and they were walking along the hard you know along the harbour and yeah they said everyone's like out buying ice creams and you know walking their dog and sunbathing and and he just wanted to go up and shake them and say do you not know what our armed forces have just been through They've just fought a war on your behalf, and mm -hmm. none of you seem to to not. I mean, did, yeah. did not criticize criticism again. I'm, uh -huh. I'm just saying that the, it must have been hard, John. They they just don't know what it's like to go to war. I mean, I didn't expect to go to war. To be honest, I joined the navy to be a PDI, travel the world, have a bit of fun, enjoy myself. Um, you don't expect to go to war, but obviously it happened. And I think that was a big eye-opener for, for lots and lots of people. Lots of people. How long was it before you you found out you were suffering with trauma? And how did that come about? I think I, um, when I left the Navy, I... There was something going on then because I, I, I think I started to isolate myself um, in my last few months uh, before I got out. Um, I was, I would prefer to work on my own. I felt easier that way. And then when I did get out, I went uh, commercial diving. Um, and when you go commercial diving, I think it's very much like being in a mob. Most of the people I work with are ex-military. And it's the way you work, the shift patterns you work. And then I was doing three months on, month off. So when I get the month off, I would go home. Everybody would want to know what I've been doing, where I've been. And then I would go away again. I would train. I would be, I would do my 12 hour shift. I would do some, I would go training in the evenings or most nights I would train some, some sort of exercises. Um, and I think it was the adrenaline. Um, but when I came home, I still felt a bit different. Um, 
I don't know. And then I just seem to start going downhill slowly. And when I actually finished diving, that's when it, it started to hit. I started having the, the, the flashbacks, the nightmares, um, alcohol, lots of alcohol. I was, um, for a while, I was treated for depression, anxiety. Nothing ever came of it. I had CBT, nothing ever came of it. And then it came a stage whereby um, I wanted to take my own life. Um, that was basically alcohol and medication induced. I saw a doctor in hospital and he went, whoa, this could be PTSD. Um, I was looked at and I was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, but all the therapy I had before that for CBT, uh, when I was, you know, sort of had a, like depression, anxiety, not once did they go back to my military days. Um, they didn't go that far back. And then it, it was 2016 that I was actually diagnosed with PTSD. So I'd gone through all those years, which I called living in my black hole because um, I was, maybe I was macho, maybe I was, no, it can't happen to me. Um, but I was, I was going down and down and down. I mean, I got married uh, not long after I started diving. I got you know, a beautiful wife, I've got three kids. You know, the, the shit I must have put them through, you know, for quite a few years. Um, and I think, but because I was away, um, you don't see it as much. Yeah. And then when I come home, I'm on the high because I'm come home. And I remember my wife, Christine, sort of, she would sort of try and change things around when I was at home to make it easier for me. And then obviously I would go away again. But um, when I finished the diving, I think um, that, that's when it seriously started to go. That's when the nightmares, um, all the problems I started to have. And then I was diagnosed. Um, I went straight up to Scotland within four months, five months, and I had the trauma treatment. How, how does that take place? What, what do they do there, John? Um, basically, it was through combat stress. Um, I had, I think it was 27 one-hour sessions over six weeks. Um, it took a long time for me to start to open up, but um, my psychologist was lovely. When you're not doing your sessions, um, you're doing all sorts of other activities. Um, um, they explain to you, you know, the PTSD, the well-being. They, you do a lot of art, you do a lot of, of, of photography to try and express your feelings. And then you will discuss it all with each other, you know, trying to find things that make you understand or make you realize uh, the signs and the symptoms so that you've got coping strategies. So when you, you feel things going on, you know how to cope. You think, oh, right. One of the big ones I had was um, every time I had a, a, um, a trauma session, I used to take um, cut grass in a little bag into my session. And that was my grounding tool because cut grass was something I always loved the smell of when I came back from diving with being in the Middle East. So I used to 
so when I was getting upset or when I was getting a bit agitated, she would just tell me, smell your grass, you know, have a sniff of your grass, you know, um, and it would just like calm me down and bring me down. And then for a while, I used to have a little rugby ball, a little small plastic rugby ball, really soft one, squishy one. I used to keep it in my pocket and I just used to play with that in my hand, you know, just, it was a, it was a, a, a calming mechanism for me. It would, you know, soothe me down. But obviously, but you're just looking um, at different ways to, 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 to recognise things, different ways to, 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 to know what your limits are. But it was really good. I mean, it was good. It helped me with the, the trauma work especially because um, I actually opened up. Um, I don't feel ashamed about some of the stuff that I had to do um, because they make you real, look at it in a different way. Uh, one of the one of the one of the the big ones for me was um, I did that REMDR rapid eye movement, and we paused at a, a, a scenario where I was not letting people into the ship, and and, and I mentioned about pushing them away. Um, and it's like, I felt really bad about it, you know, as if I, I was killing my mates um, and that haunted me. But my therapist stopped it there and she turned it round and sort of said, well, actually, you did what you had to do because you actually saved the 25, 30 people in the life raft. So you've actually saved 25 lives not pushed away two or three people you've actually saved and the way she did it sort of made me realize that you know yes you know it was, it's it's quite right yes i had to do but i had to do what i had to do to save the bigger picture yeah so in effect that sort of bad scenario has been turned in my brain so that i can accept it and basically, it's it's now put to sleep. Mm -hmm. Sounds a bit like cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how old were you in the Falklands, John? Oh, right. Um, uh, 57, what, 23. So it's no age at all, is it, really? I mean... Uh, 29, sorry, 24, 25. 20, yeah, 24, about, about 24. Yeah. I didn't grow up until I was 60 <laughs> and I'm only 50. <laughs> I think you shouldn't be allowed to join the military until you're at least 40. And by that time, there ain't no way you're going to join. <laughs> no, no. Well, I think that some people would for various reasons, but uh -huh. I think a lot of people were like, no, that's, let's go the peaceful route. Let's, um, let's talk about something a bit more fun now, John, field gun. Uh -huh. Right. How, how did that actually originate? Because I've heard I've heard the kind of rumors that you hear when you when you're in the in the mob. Right. Uh, it originated from the Boer War. Right? Um HMS Powerful took well the sailors from HMS Powerful took um these big field guns. Um to the Battle of Ladysmith, right? And that to take them over by land. But they broke, 
the wheels broke. So they had to dismantle them, manhandle them, and get them put back together for the Boer War to, to fire at the Battle of Ladysmith. And that's where it originated from. Um, it came back to the UK and basically they used to parade these guns, you know, at ceremonies. Um, and then it was built into a, a small competition and it just escalated and escalated and you then have the role to the, the, the field gun competition at the Royal Tournament at Hill School. But over the years it's got faster and faster. Um, the drills getting changed slightly um, and it, it's an awesome event. Yes. Yeah. For people who haven't seen it, or I'm, I'm guessing it's probably people too young, too young to know it. The it became a tournament where they would reenact this famous um, event, carrying yeah. carrying the field gun, and they would do it on an assault course. And you'd have various teams from all around the Royal Navy uh, who'd take part, and the final would be at the Royal Tournament. Is that right, John? Yeah, what, what, what we had was you, you had Devonport, Portsmouth and the Fleet Iron Field Gun Crews. Three main ports. Um, you were trained for six months. Um, you would end up, you would go to Hills Court and I think you, um, you have 16 runs each. Eight against each the other two. Um, you get two points for a win, one point for a loose, a loss, and no points if you're disqualified. They have um, four, there was four, um, sort of like four trophies. One was the fastest time, one was for the best B crew, one was for the least amount of penalty points, because if you do things wrong, you'll get penalised points. And then the other one was the intermarket. Cup, which was the team with the most number of wins or points over the whole competition. Well, in '84, um, I ran uh, obviously for Portsmouth. Um, we did what is what was was known as uh, it was two minutes forty point six. It was the world record, and it stood for fifteen years. Wow! Um, and it was broken by Devonport. Uh, 1999 the last world tournament the last run they beat it by about 0.2 of a second bastards yes <laughs> is it again i just want to paint the picture for for our friends at home so you've got this tournament you've got these men that and they are all huge we're talking you know up upwards six foot two three four Built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, you, you, actually, you actually get, yes, you can have your six foot two, six foot three, six foot four. However, you've then got things like the first swing who goes over the chasm on the rope. He could be five foot seven, five foot eight, five foot six. Yes. You know, um, you've got your big boots on the gun because they're lifting heavy stuff. And then you've got smaller people who are doing different stuff you've all sorts of different sizes but you're all extremely fit you are very muscular and um, so you have a, a, a quite a combination of of 
um, of people. Quite a combination. And you're dressed uh, in, in your best, I don't know what you call it, but the whites, and it looks, it's Yeah, you, 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 you have your white top on, you have your, um, your basically your number one trousers on. They're not your number ones, but they are very similar. You have the white gaiters on. Obviously, that's uh, protect your lower part of your feet. Um, and it does, it, it looks awesome. Mm. It looks awesome. And it, there used to be these kind of, um, I was going to say urban legends, but they're probably not leg well, urban myths, but they're probably not myths because I've no doubt they're true, that people would lose their fingers and, and get broken arms and this kind of thing. <laughs> if you can't see it, Mangled at the end. No, <laughs> it doesn't matter. No, I, I had two of my fingers crushed. Wow. Ow. Between the gun barrel and the wheel. Yeah, not nice. No. <laughs> and um, the other thing I, I, I heard, John, was um, I, I'm guessing, well, I'll say what I heard. I heard that they wouldn't let they wouldn't let the Marines have a team, but I I would say that's probably more because they weren't involved in the in the actual original story of, in the Boer War as opposed to they were too fit and they'd always win it. I I honestly do not know the real story of that, um, but I would probably say they wouldn't let them in it because it was sailors who took the guns over and it, it's sailors who were doing it. Yeah, that's why. Other, otherwise you could have Marines doing it, Army doing it, RAF doing it, but it was sailors first and foremost. Mm. There's actually a field gun in my, I don't want to say where I live, although most people know, but there's a field gun in my local park. Is there? Yeah. Pointing out at a certain, uh, Dockyard, shall we say? Yeah. Diving, um, commercial diving. Yes. I've, I've always wanted to have a commercial diver <clears throat> on the podcast, John, because that mm -hmm. is, that's just something again that's, that's, well, it fascinates me. Mm -hmm. How did you get from, I mean, you did your ship's diving course in the Navy, you said. Yeah, I did, I did the ship's diver in the Navy. Uh, that was purely, I mean, I just, I saw the divers, you know, working. Um, and I thought, oh, that, that appeals to me. I want that. I like that. So I did the course. Um, it was a little bit extra money. I got a buzz out of doing it. I enjoyed it. But when I left, when I left the Navy, um, I was going to go into to sport and recreation. Um, but I decided against it because my qualifications in the Navy are not recognised in the UK, uh, sorry, in Mississippi. Mm. So I just phoned up Fort William, found a course. It was called a three to one conversion. Um, I think I went within a week, I went up to Scotland and I did the, the, the conversion course. And then I, that was it, started diving. I mean, I wasn't saturation diving, it was just air diving. Um, I did use gas uh, uh, 
at some points, but it wasn't the the the, the, the really deep, you know, living in a decompression chamber or uh, uh, sock chamber. Um, I might have done the gunsock diving if I hadn't got married. It was just basically money. What kind of you jobs know. were you doing? Then? Were you? I'm guessing you were fi fixing lots of stuff. Um, I. I would do construction work. Um, I did quite a bit of inspection work, um, in, in, in inspecting the the legs um, on the jackets, um, all sorts of. Uh, I think what was it called? Uh, oh, I can't remember now what the actual ticket I had. CSIRP three one U. It was a, a an in inspection ticket. Uh, we used to take videos and record things. I also do a lot of construction work, uh, putting stuff in, changing pipelines, um, all, all sorts, but all busy on the rigs, mm. you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, when I was in West Africa, we did a lot of work on, um, they had sort of subsea wells, and we had to go down and do a lot of inspection work on them, change a lot of stuff. Uh, but it was, it was well, a lot of it was inspection work. Some of it was construction. But it's not long ago now. It's starting to remember what we were doing. Because it's, it's probably the same job, but you do that many, you do it that many times on different structures, but each time it's totally different because it's a different structure. Have you, um, you know, have you ever heard of the book? It's called Diver by a guy called Tony Groom. Tony Groom and I joined the Royal Navy together. <laughs> I thought you might know him. Yeah, we joined the, the Navy together at HMS Rally in 1975. He was, we were on the same class, right? Everything. My and I've been, in, I've been in touch with him uh, on a few occasions, and I've actually got his book here in the house. Yeah, I'm, 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 it's literally up there on my shelf. I can see it now. Uh -huh. good, good book, tell him. Very good uh -huh. book. Yeah. 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 Small world. Yes, it is. There's, well, there's probably a few shipmates that we both that we uh -huh. we both know. Um, uh -huh. The only trouble is, is my memory is just not not what it used to be. Uh -huh. Um. I can't even remember the terminology, like what we used to call, like, you know, the, not the, like the boss of the ship, if you know what I mean. Not, not, um, ah, maybe I'll speak, maybe I'll speak to you afterwards about, about that. <laughs> it won't mean any, anything to anybody listening, but when I was in Norway, you had commercial divers up there and they would just spend their days diving for, I think it was scallops. Yes, scallops. Yeah, there was a lot of money in it. Yeah. Have you ever done that? No. No. no I mean, I've, I've been, I've been, I've, I've, I've sort of, I've been spearfishing before. Um, Sigalis, um, we used to put, big nets on the bottom on a, on a, on a certain day we used to put big nets at the bottom of a jacket and you used to water jet the legs and all the clams and everything used to fall into their net then we used to pull the net up 
and then we'd give it to the uh, Malaysian cooks on board and they would cook us like a seafood platter in the evening. Mm. Mm -hmm. Just stuff like that. Uh, crayfish, cigalis, uh red snapper, grouper, you know, just spearfishing. Gosh. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what's your favourite country you've been, John? Other than this great one, obviously. Ooh, it's got to be America. You enjoy, enjoyed it there, yeah? Yeah, it was... It was on the it was on the Hermes because it was and it was a decommissioning voyage. So we went uh, all the way down from New York, Mayport, all the way down to um, Florida. Just different stops on the way. You know, it was it was really really good because mm. you you had you'd get weekends away. So I remember going. Uh, I can't remember exactly where we were. It might be Mayport. We got the weekend off. Uh, we jumped in a higher car and we went down to um, Disney World. You know, came back. Um, it was just awesome. It was, it was a, a relaxing, friendly sort of decommissioning voyage. Yeah, and it's an eye opener going to the states for the first time. Isn't uh huh. Uh huh. In fact, actually, when I was on ship, it was my second time in the states. The first time I went on a holiday uh -huh. to, to New York. Uh -huh. Everything is so huge there and so uh -huh. just so different. <laughs> Can't really explain it. Just different. Uh -huh. um, but uh, yeah, I have a great, great time in the states. One wonderful people as well. Very, very, um, uh -huh. very kind people in America. Uh -huh. Well, oh, and I wanted to ask you about your fan dance. Right. How, how old were you when you did that, John? Six, I was 61 years old. I did it in five hours, 41 seconds. I had the 25, because I was classed as over 40s. I was classed as a master. So I had the 25 pound burger plus water plus food. I think in total, I was about 35 pound. Obviously, it was decreasing as the water went, as I, as I went, but I did it. Uh, it was, yeah, five hours, 41. Um, apparently, I was told in the bowl itself, it was 40 degrees. My gosh. Yeah. Um, so, That's absolutely. Hot. Yeah. No wonder, uh, no wonder those three lads died of heat exhaustion. I mean, I was told it was 40, whether or not it was 40, I don't know. But I was actually told, uh, I was in uh, Brecon. Um, obviously, we stayed the night there, two nights there, obviously the night before and the night after. Um, the night we'd finished, I was in one of the pubs in there and I was talking to some of the people there and they said, oh, it was apparently it was 40 degrees in that bowl today. Yeah, I so, can't believe it. So does that mean you're in the SAS now? Nope, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't do it in three and a half hours or whatever time it took. So no, nope. and I wasn't carrying a weapon. Well, but no, you obviously, <laughs> obviously slacking a bit, mate. But no, it was. I mean, it was. It was awesome. Uh, Ken Jones, the bloke who dished out the uh, like the badges afterwards. You know, he he just turned around and said, you know, uh, to for, for people to do that, you know, it's a civvy. I know, yes, I know your navy, but he, he just said, a sixty-one-year-old, he said, you know. I'm, I'm impressed you know well done you know so 
and I've, I've still got that uh, I've still got the, the, the badge in my pocket I keep it in my wallet yeah I was um, fortunate to have Jay on the program Jay runs a company called the SF experience mm-hmm. um, and they they did they do this thing you're talking about they they basically give civilians the chance to do all the kind of SAS stuff and ah. and um, yeah it sounds fascinating I'm trying I want him to get me on a few <laughs> to get me uh-huh. on a few of his programs uh-huh. John listen it, it's been well it's been emotional for a start my god that's just that's just listening to your story what 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 all you guys and i'm guessing the girls on the civilian liners had to go through when you were when you were down there no it's um it's just it's beyond belief and i'm glad that you've um got to grips with a trauma because our message to people out there, if they're suffering, if, if, they're, if they're hitting the booze, if they're depressed, if they don't know why, why life is wrong, we've got to tell them to reach out, John, haven't we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm, uh, I just, uh, it's, a, lot, a lot of things come out of it. You know, it's, it's, it's okay to talk. You know, you don't have to be... Uh, you don't have to isolate yourself because there are people out there who, who will listen, who will talk. You know, you have got friends. You know, don't alienate yourself from your friends. You know, and, and what I've sort of learned is, you know, be around positive people. Positive people can always help you. Um, but negative people will pull you down. Yeah. And they, they might not know they're negative, but you will know because it's, you don't really want to be around them because you're bored. Because um, and I've sort of learned, you know, when I'm with positive people, I can be positive, I can, I can talk to them. But if I'm in a group where some are positive and some are negative, um, when the negative people are talking, I'll start to wonder. My eyes will start and I'll start looking around because... Um, I'm starting to get agitated. And that's what I've learned for myself. Yes. So once again, if you're listening and you're struggling, do what John's done, reach out, go and see your GP, say something's not right. It's, um, people say there's a a stigma about mental health and it, I, it's, yeah, it's like, I see it in society. I see the kind of idiotic, things people say in the, the, uh-huh. the you know the the, the 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 views they've hold but for me personally it's like one of the proudest experiences of my life way more proud than wearing the green berry is that I've come through you know mental health challenges and I'm, I'm still here and um, yeah hopefully a stronger person because of it so to anyone Again, listening who's struggling. If I if it's the proudest thing I've done in my life was 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 getting it all sorted out, then I'd mm. encourage I'd encourage you to, you to to you too. Mm. Um, John, it's been absolutely brilliant. S- stay on the line just um, so I can say a proper proper goodbye. But thank you mm-hmm. so much. Thank How you. Can people get hold of you if they want you to come and public speak for them. 
Um, You're on LinkedIn, I mean, aren't you? Sorry? You're on LinkedIn, so I can put that below our video. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm um, at the minute with Frank. Um, I'm busy looking at uh, basically getting my own uh, site, right? Yeah. Um, and then getting my own page together. But I'm, I'm, because I'm not that way inclined, really, um, I've, I've got friends who are going to help me with that. Uh, also, uh, the Veterans Charity Forward Assist, they're going to help me with stuff like that. Um, and I'm also hopefully looking to do uh, um, like a suicide awareness course. So it gives me more of an insight uh, um, for myself so I can, you know, help other people. But certainly for my story, um, you can link in, as you said, in your, your LinkedIn site. And um, I'm on Facebook. Yeah. Well, if you give me the links after, I'll put them underneath the video so people can get hold of you. Uh -huh. right. And um, shipmate, once again, just massive... I'm blown away. It's um, one hell of a story, and congrats, <laughs> congrats on uh, on still being here to tell it, mate. Yeah, well, you know, I'm here. <laughs> good, good. Stay on the line, John. To everybody at home, thank you so much for listening to this just mind-blowing podcast. I hope you've. Uh, I don't want to say enjoyed it, but I hope you have enjoyed it and, and probably been on the roller coaster I, I've been on for this last two hours. Massive thank you for watching. Thank you for supporting the channel. If you can give us a subscribe, there'll be plenty more to come. Thank you. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thrall. Thank you.